Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Romans chapter 4. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 13 through 25. You can feel free to follow along with me in the Pew Bible, your own Bible, your smartphone. It's also been um, conveniently printed for you in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along there, you can do that. Uh, Anyway, I do want to welcome you to Redeemer. It is so great to have you with us this morning. Uh, My name is Sean Slay. I'm the pastor here. And we are so glad to have you because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be at home scratching your eyes out and blowing your nose because the pollen is in full effect. And maybe you're like me and just completely exhausted and wiped out from it. Uh, And hopefully hopefully you can have a clear mind a little bit this morning from all the medicine that you're taking uh, so that you're not (laughs) making a mess up here. Or maybe you could be at home watching uh, The Masters, which was an amazing day yesterday. Or you could be at home finishing off your Easter basket uh, from last week, uh, but you're not doing any of those things. You're here with us this morning, and we're really glad to have you. Thank you for coming. Um, You know, the reality is that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time than worship the risen Jesus and to consider the beauty of his kingdom and to think about his claims upon our life. And so I do want to thank you for joining us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And uh, what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. And he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the great love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. And so we love to get together and watch the masters. We love to get together and play softball. We love to get together and read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus And so as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University, Knoxville. And hopefully in some way it will spill out into the entire world, right? That's who we are, people who are trying to learn how to love God. Uh, We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest as we remind and as we reflect. And so to help us do that uh, this morning, uh, we're beginning this new series for the season of Eastertide. And we're gonna be thinking about the gifts of resurrection, looking at these vignettes, these ideas, these themes of resurrection uh, in the letter to the Romans. Romans chapter four this morning, six, seven, and then eight. And this morning, what I want us to consider 
is the gift of resurrection faith, all right? Resurrection faith. So with that in mind, let's look together at Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, uh, I do ask that you would be with us uh, this morning, uh, especially me, uh, as I'm struggling uh, and feeling dizzy. I pray that you would help me to be focused and have clarity of thought and mind and heart and soul. I pray that you, in your kindness and your mercy, uh, would meet with us by your Spirit uh, to show us lovely, beautiful delightful things of your kindness where you bring life into that which is death. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I assume that many of you have seen the, the TV show The Good Place. And if you've seen The Good Place, you know that it has been wildly popular over these last few years on the Netflix. And uh, I've only seen the first three seasons, so I don't know how the show ends, but I do know how it begins. And in the first episode, uh, we see this woman who has died, and there she is, and she's sitting in Ted Danson's office, and she's awaiting entrance into the good place, and then Ted Danson eventually lets her into the good place, and as they begin walking around the good place and looking at all the frozen yogurt places, uh, they then go to the orientation for the good place. And there in the orientation, they reveal how people get in. And what they tell us is that over uh, the course of our life, they calculate the value of your life based on all the good and based upon all the bad that you do. 
And so every event, every action is not only seen and is not only evaluated, it is actually assigned a value. So for instance, um, you know, if you eat vegan, uh, plus 400, right? If you never discuss veganism unprompted, plus 9,841, right? If, if you give out full-size candy bars at Halloween, plus 612. If you commit genocide, negative 430,796, which I think is a little low, right? I mean, it ought to be a little bit higher. If you rev your motorcycle in the neighborhood, negative uh, 65. If you blow your nose by depressing one nostril down and then exhaling, you know, negative 1.44. And then if you ignore a text message while you are in in-person conversation, plus 1,048. Uh, and as you, as you watch this, it's just sort of that classic view of judgment by the scales, just all the way down into the details. And if you've ever watched a show, what you begin to realize is that every episode is a case study in moral philosophy and an attempt uh, to gain entrance into the good place. And on one level, because it's a comedy, right, the, the whole show sort of makes light of the exercise. But on the other hand, uh, the writers seem to realize that they are engaging in the deep longing that humanity has to enter into the good place. And it's that longing for the good place that I think all of us have that I think has made the show just so popular because we long for that good place. Whether uh, you're religious or secular, uh, whether you're Christian or Buddhist, whether the good place for you is nirvana or heaven, or whether the good place is just a secular utopia, the good place seems to be a common longing for all of humanity. And whatever it is that you give yourself to, or whatever it is that you trust in to uh, give you or to earn the good place, that is where your faith is. Whatever you're trusting in for the good place, whatever you're trusting in for the good life, whatever you're trusting in for that great life, that is where your faith is. And what this passage teaches us is in verse 17, that the Christian faith is in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Right, what this passage is teaching us, you see it in verse 17, is that the Christian faith is in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. So say that with me. The Christian, I'm just kidding, it's way too long, right? Uh, so uh, let, let's make it a little bit more succinct, uh, right? As Christians, we believe in the God of creation and the God of resurrection, right? We believe in the God of creation and the God of resurrection. Say that with me. We believe in the God of creation and of resurrection. Now, here's the deal. Uh, as we think about our lives and the lives of our friends and neighbors, it seems as if we're all longing for this good place. And the reason that we long for the good place is because God made us to be a people who live in the good place. And sadly, what has happened is that because of our sin and because of our selfishness, in a sense, we have made the world a not-so-good place. 
And therefore, what we long for more than anything is for the goodness of this world to be restored. Right? We long for the paradise uh, uh, that God has given us to be restored and to be remade. We long for what Christians call heaven. And so in order to understand our longings, in order to understand our lives, and I think in order to understand this passage, I think we need to step back from Romans for a moment and go back to the beginning. Because in the beginning, it sets it out for us. And do you remember the beginning? Do you remember the way the story of God begins? It begins in the beginning. And in the beginning, God created, he made the heavens and the earth. And when he made the heavens and the earth, he made the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Out of nothing, God made everything. And he made everything out of nothing by the word of his power. Just as our passage tells us in our own passage here in Romans chapter 4, verse 17. God called into existence things that do not exist. And what that means is that the universe is what it is because God called it into being. And what that means is that the last airbender's core of existence, the eternal core of existence, water, earth, fire, air, right, are not the eternal core, but they are called into being by the eternal God. They are called into being by the eternal God. And so after God had called all things into being, we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, that God then planted a garden in Eden. In the Greek translation, which we call the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word for garden is the word paradise. God planted a paradise in this earth. He made the world to be a paradise, a place of beauty and a place of safety, a place that was good and right, a place that was good, a good place, a place where you could work and where you could rest, a place where you could be loved and where you could love, a place where the tears that were uh, streaming down our face were not because of sorrow, but they were because of laughter, a place where the burdens that are upon our backs are lifted so that we might have rest and we might have peace. And he made this place to be a place that, that gave, sustained, and enabled us to enjoy the life God had given us. And there in the midst of the garden, God in his kindness uh, placed humanity. And he put us there in the midst of that garden, in the midst of that paradise, to care for it and to tend it, to love it, to grow it. And in turn, that paradise was then supposed to nourish and care for us. And the humanity that God had made, he placed us there in the midst of that paradise to care for it and to nurture it and to reflect the image and the glory of God uh, to the world and to fill out the garden, to fill out the world, right? Proclaiming God's goodness and his kindness. And we did that there in the garden by having dominion over the animals, tending to the beauty and to the life of the garden and helping it to be cultivated and to grow. 
And that garden then was supposed to multiply. The garden was supposed to be fruitful. The garden was then supposed to expand and fill the entire earth. And humanity was supposed to do the same thing. We were supposed to multiply and to fill the earth. And we were supposed to be teeming with life and reflect God's glory to the world. And God said that what I had made and the way in which I had made it was not only good, but it was very good. And I think that one of the things that's incredibly amazing about uh, this good creation is that God in his grace gave that paradise to us. He gave the paradise to us to enjoy and to love. And that paradise was given to us as a gift. It was gifted to us. The paradise was not created by us, but it was gifted to us by our Heavenly Father. And so in a very real way, in the beginning, what God was doing is saying, you are my sons and you are my daughters and you will inherit the world. Which is the very same promise we see God remaking to Abraham there in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring would be that he would be heir of the world. The promise is that we would be heirs of the world. Well, if you've been around Christianity for any time at all, you know where this story is getting ready to go. And you know that Adam and his offspring rebelled against God. Uh, We rebelled against the giver of life. And we wanted then to rule that garden apart from God. We wanted to rule the garden and cultivate the garden for ourselves. And so when the evil one slithered into the garden and told us that we could be like God and that we could be wise apart from him, we then began to use our own wisdom to cultivate the garden for our own ends. And in doing so, we began to cultivate the garden for our own glory rather than for God's glory. And in doing this, what happened is we, in our wisdom, brought sickness, sorrow, pain, and death into the world. And by trying to keep God out of the good paradise that God had given to us, paradise was lost. Now that might sound to many of you uh, to be metaphysical. It might sound like many of you to be mythical. Uh, But as Christians, uh, we believe that this is reality. And the reason that we believe this is reality is because God has said that this is reality. But we believe it not only because God has said it is reality, we also believe it because it makes sense of the reality in which we live. Because is it not true that we see the world uh, filled with sickness, sorrow, pain, and death? Is it not true that the more we strive to cultivate and use this world for our own ends, we find ourselves being more and more disappointed by this world? Is it not true that uh, nothing on this earth has ever truly satisfied us? Uh, Not our cities, uh, not our jobs, not our relationships, not our cars, not our big wheels, not the bike that we got, not the meal that we ate last night, not the weather, not the pollen that is crushing us. Uh, is Is it not true that every day you can find something to complain about? And is it not true that in the disappointment that we have in this world, we are constantly finding that it doesn't satisfy it, but we want it to satisfy us. And we continue to try to use it to satisfy us, and so we start to exploit it, and we use it, and we buy, and we sell it, and we attempt to commodify God's good creation for our own gain. 
You see it as you plan your vacation. I mean, you want the perfect vacation. So you search the internet, you call your friends. What's the perfect place? You put the down, the down payment or the deposit on the vacation and you are so anxious that a storm is gonna come through. You're so anxious that you're gonna get the COVID. You're so you know, anxious you're gonna get sick and not be able to enjoy that perfect vacation that you had planned. Or maybe in sort of a metaphorical way, I mean, how often do we send the waiter back as we just look over the menu and look over the menu and look over the menu, trying to find that perfect meal to order? Constantly exploiting, constantly using, constantly demanding that this earth would satisfy us. And as the kids used to say, YOLO, right? You only live once. And because we only live once, right, we find ourselves competing with one another uh, to suck the marrow out of life so that we don't miss out and get condemned and relegated uh, to that boring, uh, dissatisfied life. And in doing this, what we find ourselves doing is putting so much pressure on this world to satisfy us. We, we put all this pressure on things and on people and on this earth to satisfy us. And when we do this, uh, we demand too much. And in doing this, we miss out on all these simple pleasures. And we miss out on all the gifts that God has given us. I read to you last week from Tim Keller's article in The Atlantic. I want to do it again because he's honest about this in the article. He says this. He says, since my diagnosis, Kathy and I have come to see that the more we tried to make a heaven out of this world, the more we grounded our comfort and security in it, the less we were able to enjoy it. Kathy and I should have known better. We did know better. When we turn good things into ultimate things, when we make them our greatest consolations and loves, they will necessarily disappoint us bitterly. Thou hast made us for thyself, Augustine said in his most famous sentence, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And to our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we're able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with the demands impossible for it to fulfill. We have found that the simplest things from sun on the water and flowers in the vase, to our own embraces, sex, and conversation bring more joy than ever. This has taken us by surprise. As God's reality dawns more and more on my heart, slowly and painfully and through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It is only as I have become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly-minded that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift that it is. And this is a beautiful statement. It is a, a gift that Tim has given us to remind us because what he's saying is that this world is a good gift to be enjoyed. But it's a world that's been given to us by God. It's a creation given to us by God to enjoy, not to demand of. It's a world to be received. And what he's saying is that, that the gift was to point us, not to the gift itself, but the gift was to point us to the giver of all that is good. And so after the fall of humanity, right, the using of the garden, God made a promise. 
And he made a promise to Abraham. And we see that promise in Genesis chapter 12 and through 17. And God made this promise to Abraham, essentially saying, look, you're going to be my new man. You're going to be the new representative. You are going to be the one who will fill the earth and multiply. You are the one who is going to bring life and blessing onto the entire earth. You and your offspring are going to inherit the world. And you will restore what Adam lost. And you will do this because I'm calling you to be mine and I am going to give you the world as your inheritance. And I'm going to give you the world not to consume it and not to commodify it, but I'm giving you the world to bless it. To be the ones who live in this world as God intended you to live, to enjoy the world and to bless the world so that the world would be blessed. So that the world would know that God is good and he is the giver of all good things. And this is exactly what then Abraham received by faith. He received this calling. He received this God by faith that God is the God of creation. And God is the God of resurrection. And as children of Abraham, as our text in Romans tells us, as children of Abraham who believe in the very same God, we too are a people who believe in the God of creation and the God of resurrection. Say that with me. We believe in the God of creation and of resurrection. But there was a problem uh, with God's promise to Abraham. And if you remember the story, you'll know that Abraham uh, and his wife were old. And God had promised Abraham that their offspring would inherit the earth. But But the problem was that Abraham and his wife Sarah were beyond childbearing age. Abraham, the text tells us, was almost 100 years old. Sarah had a body that was barren. Uh, She had long passed menopause, but even before menopause, she was barren and had not been able to give birth to children. And so the big question was, reality tells us that our bodies are filled with death. Uh, reality tells us that there is no offspring for us to have. And this is where the resurrection faith comes in because death had not only entered into the creation, but what we see is that death had entered into their bodies. Look again at verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his body, which was good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And so I don't know if you heard it or not, but what the text is telling us is that Abraham believed right that not only god could bring things into existence that did not exist before right but abraham also believed that god could give life to that which was dead that god was a god who could resurrect right that god could bring life out of death and this belief in resurrection wasn't just sort of a wish fulfillment this belief in resurrection wasn't just sort of like I'm really sad I hope this would be different this idea of resurrection that Christians has isn't just a psychological way for us of dealing with the sadness and the reality of death or hoping against hope that the dead will receive life and I get it right the secularist and the existentialist would tell us Look, y'all just need to have courage. 
you just need to be brave enough to admit that this life ends in death. And when your life ends in death, that's all there is. You need to be honest about that. But here's what our text is reminding us of. Our text is saying that Christians are actually incredibly honest about the realities that we experience. Because Abraham looked at his body and Abraham looked at the body of his wife and he said, we're dried up. He said, we are dead. There is no life left in us. And he was realistic about the way things were. But Abraham's faith came into play when he looked at reality and then he listened to God, right? Faith is about believing what God says. And God said, out of your death, I will give life. Faith always believes God's promises. And so Abraham believed in resurrection, not because he wanted it to be true, And not because he hoped that it would be true. And not as a way to sort of cover over the sadness of the death of their body. Abraham believed in resurrection because God promised resurrection. Look at verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteous. And what I want you to see here is that faith takes God at his word, right? Faith isn't something that denies reality. In fact, I think faith enables us to be incredibly honest about reality. It enables us to be honest about the brokenness and the sadness and the difficulties and the impossibilities of this world. And I think Christians of all people are probably the most honest about the brokenness of our world. Faith just believes that God is the one who is behind reality and God is the one who tells us how things will be. And so faith, just like science and just like experience, says, of course everyone dies. And uh, of course uh, science and experience, they tell us that life stops at death. And, uh, but the reality is this, that science and experience, and experience only tell us what has been in the past. They only tell us what is now. Like science and experience are really just ways of observing and describing what has been. And based on observation, science and experience then make predictions about what will be. And so this is where faith comes in, right? This is where faith comes in as we think about what will be. And faith isn't so much just a leap in the dark, as our friends say. Faith is a proper confidence in God. And this is where I think Leslie Newbigin's book, Proper Confidence, is incredibly helpful. And here's what he says. If the place where we look for ultimate truth is in a story, and if, as is the case, we're in the middle of the story, then it follows that we walk by faith and not by sight. If ultimate truth is sought in an idea, a formula, or a set of timeless laws or principles, then we do not have to recognize the possibility that something totally unexpected may happen. Insofar as our knowledge is accurate, we shall be able to predict the future. 
Future and past are governed by the same laws, the same principles, and the same realities. But if we find ultimate truth in a story that has not yet been finished, we do not have that kind of certainty. The certainty we have rests on the faithfulness of the one whose story it is. Therefore, we walk by faith. I'm sure every one of you followed all of that. It's a little dense. It's a little long. Forgive me. But here's, here's this point. What he's saying is that ultimate truth or life itself is not merely a formula. That life isn't sort of a set of plug and play, that it's not just timeless principles, that it's not just a series of cause and effects, but maybe this world is more like a stage on which God's story is taking place. And as God's story is being worked out in history and in the creation, we are now living in the middle of his story. We don't live at the very beginning of his story. We're not at the very end of the story, but we live in the middle of the story waiting for God's story to play itself out. And therefore, we are a people who are waiting for the end to come. And we wait in faith, trusting the way God, the playwright, tells us the story will end. And so we live in this world fundamentally by faith, taking God at his word about what will be. And that was the point of Abraham. That's how Abraham lived by faith. He believed God's promise to give life to that which was dead. And then he waited for God to fulfill what he had promised. Look again at verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. And so as you look at this verse, verse 23, I hope you hear these same themes at work that just as Abraham believed that God would give life to the dead, and then just as God fulfilled his promises to Abraham by giving a child, so too we believe that God will keep his word and that God will bring life out of death. And this promise of resurrection that God had made to humanity has begun to be fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. And it is Jesus' resurrection that is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise, which is the guarantee to us that we too, with Jesus, will be resurrected when he comes again. And so here's the point. As God's people, like Abraham, we believe in a God of creation and a God of resurrection. Say that with me. We believe in a God of creation and of resurrection. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that begins the new creation. Because the resurrection is the beginning of God's promise to restore the paradise, to make things right, to restore that inheritance that God had promised to give to his children. And ultimately, as you think about the story, the biblical story, what we learn is that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is that promised one given to Abraham who would come and bless the world and inherit the world and then share it and share the fruit of the new world with his brothers and sisters. And more than that, what we learn about Jesus is that Jesus was the faithful one 
where Abraham, where, uh, where Adam had failed. And this is really amazing because if you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is all about the resurrection, here's what Paul says. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so what he's saying is Jesus rose from the dead, he's the first fruits, and to be the first fruits means that there's a guarantee of more to come, is what Paul then goes on to say. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in its own order. Christ the first fruits, Christ Jesus the first one, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. He goes on to say, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust, and the second man is from heaven as the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as he, uh, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. It's amazing because here's his point. He's saying the resurrection is God's promise to bring life where the first man, Adam, brought death right that that God's promise the resurrection is God's promise that in Jesus a new creation has begun and all who trust all who have faith in him will inherit the earth the new creation and enjoy the fruit of the new world again the resurrection of Jesus is God's uh, the beginning of the fulfillment of the defeat of death that Adam had brought into the world and the guarantee of the fruitfulness of the new world to come. That this beautiful creation that God had made that is now scarred by sickness, sorrow, pain, and death, this beautiful creation that is filled with injustice and violence and anger, this beautiful world that is broken psychologically and politically and sociologically and spiritually and racially and even financially, is a world, is a creation that will be made new and bear much fruit. And this is God's promise to us that he will make the whole world new again. And the world will be what it was always supposed to be, a world that is growing and flourishing and multiplying and teeming with life with God at its center. And this is what we as God's people believe. We believe in the God of creation and resurrection. And what's amazing is that our God, Jesus, is the one who entered into the creation and died and was resurrected. And his resurrection is the promise that in him we will receive the inheritance of this world and enjoy its fruit and its blessing with him. Here's the point. We believe in the God of creation and of resurrection. Right? We believe in the God of creation and of resurrection. Say that with me. We believe in the God of creation and of resurrection. That's what the table's about. Let's go and talk about it real quick. Because as we come to the table, what we're seeing here is that God has put bread and wine on the table. And bread and wine are just common creational good things, good gifts from God. These good things of the earth that we use, right, to sustain life and to find life. But here at the table, God is saying that my creational gifts, my good gifts to you were meant to point you beyond them to something greater, to point you from the creation to the creator. To point you to the one who actually gives life and feeds you with himself. 
And so he, can't, he invites us to come to this table to feast upon him and, and to find life in him and to lift our eyes beyond this earth, beyond the bread, beyond the wine to him. And as we come to the table, he then is making this promise that what we read in 1 Corinthians 15 is true, that he will come for us. And just as he has been resurrected, we will follow in his train and we too will be resurrected with him. And so as we come to the table, what's happening is God is wanting to confirm and to encourage our faith by reminding us that our God is the God of creation and of resurrection. Would you say that one last time with me? Our God is the God of creation and of resurrection. Therefore, I invite you to rise.